of the important truths that we unveiled last weekend is that the church is prominent in the book of Revelation. I mean, second only to the unveiling of Jesus in chapter 1, we have the church unveiled in chapters 2 and 3. And the risen and reigning Lord Jesus speaks his last recorded words on earth to seven churches. I thought you might appreciate seeing where these churches are located. Here they are on a map. You can take a look. I hope you can read the names from where you are. You have the church in Ephesus, uh, bottom left, and then Smyrna, right on up the coast, Pergamum, and then down to Thyatira. Those are the four that we looked at last weekend from chapter 2 of Revelation. Now this morning we will be looking at the last three, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And by the way, all of these are real places, used to be Asia Minor, now Turkey. Each one has been excavated by archaeologists. And the beauty of the Word of God is that it's rooted in history, it's rooted in uh, geology and geography, and it's rooted in history. So the Church of Jesus has his priority attention and his priority affection. And the fact that the message in Revelation is addressed to seven churches is significant because the number seven indicates completeness or wholeness, which means that the message of Revelation is not just for those seven churches in Asia Minor 20 centuries ago, but the message of Revelation is for the church, the whole church in every geographical location, in every generation, including the church here in Evansville, Newburgh, Indiana, on this beautiful third weekend of October 2014. Now, another important insight from last week is that the church is not optional. It is an essential part of God's plan for our salvation. It is not God's will that we go it alone in life. And in the Genesis account of creation, we read, it's not good for man to be alone. God's promise to Abraham was, I'll make your offspring as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And Jesus taught, when you pray, say, our Father. And Jesus taught, love your neighbor as yourself. And the New Testament charges us to Forsake not the assembly of ourselves together. New Testament charges us to bear one another's burdens. So the life of faith is lived out in the context of Christian community. That is undeniable. And Jesus is not fully experienced apart from the gathered, believing, praying, worshiping, serving, giving people for whom he is Lord and Savior. And we cannot be completely devoted to him if we're cool toward his bride, the church. And the church only has significance because of Jesus. Apart from him, the church has no identity. Look at the way Jesus is described in relationship to these churches in Revelation 2 and 3. I've listed them out. I want you to see this. To the church in Ephesus, it says, in speaking about Jesus, to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then the church in Smyrna, to him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. The church in Pergamum, 
to him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. The church in Thyatira, to him whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The church in Sardis, to him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. To the church in Philadelphia, to him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. The church in Laodicea, to him who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Look at all those creative ways that Jesus is described in Revelation 2 and 3. And then there is this one phrase that is repeated to each of these seven churches. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So whatever differences there are between these churches, two things are common to all of them. Number one, Jesus speaks. And number two, his people listen. This command to listen is binding on all churches from the book of Revelation forward to the 21st century. Churches are listening posts. For any child of God, listening is an act of humility. It is a spiritual act far more significant than mere acoustical function. There is a spiritual dimension to listening. It's described in Isaiah 50, verses 4 and 5. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. So there are people who walk around where God is concerned with their fingers in their ears and then there are people whose ears are open to hear from him. And then sandwiched between each description of Jesus that we just looked at and this reoccurring charge to hear, there's an individualized message for each of the seven churches. And last week we looked at the last four and what we noticed is that Jesus had both a word of commendation and a word of correction for each one of these churches. And this week we're going to look at the last three churches and we're going to find that he has a word of correction for two of the churches but no word of commendation. And he has a word of commendation for one of them, but no word of correction. And once again, there's application for us. So if you're ready to hear, let's get started by looking at the church in Sardis. And I would describe this church as the dead church. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Jesus said to the church in Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Wake up. <laughs> Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now this city of Sardis was a unique city. It was built on the crest of a steep hill 
rising 1,500 feet above the main roads. And its location resulted in it being an almost unconquerable fortress. There were natural rock walls on three sides. And the only access into the city was a narrow path on the south side. That was the only way you could get in. And so Sardis was one of the most easily defended cities in the ancient world. And any attempt to capture Sardis was considered virtually impossible. But King Cyrus of Persia did it 500 years before Christ. He surrounded the city with his army for days while the people of Sardis sat comfortably inside, unthreatened, overconfident, complacent, safe, secure. So after a few days, Cyrus sent some of his men around to the back side of the city, the north side. It was completely unguarded. And one by one, the soldiers scaled the wall, entered the city, and killed its citizens in their sleep. The people of Sardis would have been saved if they had been alert. Now, I share this little bit of history with you because the church in Sardis was suffering from the same fate as the city itself. Jesus Jesus doesn't confront them for false teaching. He doesn't confront them for immorality or idolatry, but rather, like the soldiers who should have been vigilant when King Cyrus captured the city, the church at Sardis had become apathetic. It had become complacent. There was a time when this church was alive and active, when this church influenced its community. There was a time when this church had a passion for Jesus that was deep and strong. And they still even had a reputation, but that's all they had. They just had memories of a dynamic past. Now it was dead. And it wasn't dead because of violent persecution. And it wasn't dead because of heretical teaching. It was dead because the people just stopped caring. They were content with the good they had done in the past. They were bored with worship, they were tired of fellowship, they were too preoccupied to serve, they were too jaded to give, they were lulled into a false sense of security, they were asleep in the light. Oh, they would assemble occasionally, but the apostles' teaching had no impact on how they passionately lived their Christian lives. And what did Jesus say to the Christians in Sardis? He said... Wake up! Wake up! You notice behind me this, uh, this picture. We have a different picture kind of illustrating each of these messages in this series on Revelation. You'll notice this morning it is an alarm clock. You know what an alarm clock is for? It reminds us of the fact that it's time to wake up. One of our sharp young teens at Crossroads, Parker Peach, explains it here in his own self-produced video testimony. I'd like for you to watch and listen between the lines to Parker's testimony. My name is Parker and I'm 17. I've been at Crossroads for about 17 years, ever since day one. So I, out of this, I came to a time where I realized I wasn't quite as into God as I used to be. I felt like I just didn't need Jesus. And I came to the strange question of, you know, do I need him? And if so, do I even want him? Uh, 
everything was going so well that I kind of just forgot about him. I started talking to multiple different people. I really I remind myself everybody needs Jesus. And even if you don't feel like that you desperately need his help through your life at the moment, there are others who desperately need him and who are in a really low place. And I learned that by focusing on others sometimes that you can grow to love God again yourself and truly believe in him and have a desire to follow him. The boy's a future preacher, whether he knows it or not. I hope you were able to follow. Sorry about that little glitch. Here's what Parker's saying. Everything was going great in his life, and we all have periods like that. When everything is going great, and he got comfortable, and he began to flatline in his faith, Parker was drifting off. He was losing his zeal for the Lord until he listened to wise counsel, until he began to focus on others, and then he recovered his spiritual vitality. What did he do? Well, he woke up. I think there are times in our Christian lives when we need to wake up. Some people call it revival. Some people call it renewal. In Revelation 3, it's the word of Jesus. Wake up. I'm sure that you've all noticed the promotion for our nine remaining Crossroads Vision Nights. Coming up here next week, Tuesday through Thursday, the week after, Tuesday through Thursday, the week after, which is the first week in November, Tuesday through Thursday, 6.30. Each of those evenings at the Sweetwater Event Center. Friends, we need to renew and resource our church's vision for the future. There is no financial solicitation at this meeting. This is not a business meeting. And as your pastor, I want to ask you, if you've not already done so, to sign up online or at the Connection Center today to attend this dessert reception, this presentation of what we want to do for God's purpose in the years just ahead. All we need is your name, the date that you want to attend, and your email address. That's it. Listen, we don't want to be a big church with a great past. We don't want to be content just to develop a good reputation in the community. We don't want to be like the church in Sardis. We don't want to be asleep in the light. We don't want to behave like we have arrived. We have not. We dare not be complacent. There are 120,000 people in the greater Evansville, Newburgh area that are unsaved or unchurched. And the next four months can be a wake-up season for us a very personal and practical way that we can apply this text as a church family. Let's strengthen what remains. Our good works are not complete in the sight of our God. So, and so, awake, rise, you mighty people. Well, what about the church in Philadelphia? I would describe it as the faithful church. Beginning in verse 8, Jesus said, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Now this church at Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven churches, and it was the youngest of the seven cities to which Jesus 
address these letters. It was located at the intersection of several trade routes. And it was known, Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east. But although it had a prime location, it also sat on a geological fault. And so it suffered frequent earthquakes and aftershocks. Still, it was a bustling town with a small group of Christ followers that gathered together faithfully. And even though their members were few, Jesus promised to open a door for them, giving the opportunity to have a powerful and effective ministry. They may not have had a large attendance, but they had a large heart for God and a desire to do His work. And although they may not have been a big church, they were influencing the transient population that was coming and going through their town. So their influence was far-reaching and their influence was long-lasting even though they, they couldn't see it. History records the church in Philadelphia actually outlasted the other six churches. And in this passage, we also see that they had stiff opposition from a large Jewish population that wanted to shut the door on this church but Jesus said not gonna happen because what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open so Jesus charged them to hold on that's what he said to them these Christians didn't need to wake up they were fully awake they were alive and engaged they didn't need to wake up they needed to hold on to hang tough as they say, and, and Jesus promised them that because of their faithfulness to him, that he was going to do three things. First of all, Jesus said, I will make your Jewish persecutors come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Well, this means that Jesus was going to empower them to win their Jewish friends and neighbors. See, these early Christians, they didn't carry swords. They didn't wage war. They simply outlived and outloved their oppressors in order to win them to Jesus. That's the way to do it. What else did he say he would do to reward these early Christians? Well, he also said, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. That's in verse 10. Jesus promised to protect these believers during a period of widespread persecution in that day. And today, millions of Christians are suffering and dying at the hands of godless tyrants throughout the world just as they did back then. In fact, you may not know it, but the most intense persecution of Christians in history has happened in the last 100 years. That's a fact. And the focus of our upcoming night of prayer and praise here at Crossroads on Sunday night, November 9th, will be prayer for the persecuted church. That will be the focus of our prayer time, our next night of prayer and praise. We're going to pray for Christians in Africa, some of our strong missionary partners who are dealing with the Ebola crisis. We're going to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted mercilessly by militant Islam. We're going to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in the the world who are suffering under tyrannical dictators. We're going to focus our prayers outwardly Sunday night, November the 9th. One other thing that Jesus has committed to do for the church in Philadelphia, he said, I will 
Make all who are victorious pillars in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. That's in verse 12. Now there are a couple of ideas here. The pillars in the ancient world were constructed to withstand earthquakes. It's fascinating to me. Went to the Parthenon. I always thought those columns in the Parthenon were one single hewn piece of stone. Not so. They're individual spools. They are unbelievably matched so it looks like one single piece. But in fact, it's one stacked on the other, hollowed out in the center. And then, because of earthquakes, they would drop a green tree down the center of those spools. And these columns, when there would be an earthquake, would shift and move, but they would stay together because of that, that uh, single green tree that was dropped down the center. So the pillars would stand. If you look at the ancient ruins, you'll see pillars where nothing else is standing because of how they were constructed. And also, when earthquakes happen, people do the same, did the same thing then that we do today. They get out of the building. So being pillars... And not having to flee was for these Christians in Philadelphia, where they were used to earthquakes. It was vivid imagery. And these three commitments from Jesus, Jewish conversions, exemption from persecution, and to be eternally victorious were strong incentives for them to hold on. Well, one more church, and we have possibly saved the worst for the last. Again, there's no commendation for this church, only correction for the church in Laodicea. You're most familiar with this one, the lukewarm church, chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus said, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Well, the downward spiral that we noted in the church in Sardis really hit bottom here at Laodicea. Even the church at Sardis, which Jesus called spiritually dead, had some true believers in its fellowship. But as far as we can tell, the church in Laodicea was a totally unresponsive church. And Jesus has nothing positive to say about it. Nothing. And yet, and yet he speaks to these believers desperately hoping to bring them back to himself. He never gives up. He never gives up as long as there's life, there's opportunity to come to him. You see, the name Christian originally referred to a person who was a genuine believer, a true follower of Jesus, someone who was clearly being changed by Jesus and his indwelling spirit, someone who was on mission with Jesus to make disciples. But in Laodicea, like today, Christian also came to refer to anyone who was on the church rolls, anyone who was loosely affiliated, anyone who was visible, even if only at Christmas and Easter. Some who are Christians then and now have little or no idea what it means to live a life of daily submission to his lordship. They have little or no idea what it means to daily practice his presence in their lives. But when Jesus said, because you're lukewarm, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth, I think we misunderstand. 
We think that Jesus is talking here about half-hearted, nominal Christians who aren't on fire for him. But that's not it exactly. Jesus goes on to clarify why they were repulsive to him. In verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. Boom. There it is. They were living comfortably in the thoroughly materialistic city of Laodicea. They were lukewarm because they trusted themselves and their money more than they did in Jesus. They were self-reliant. They were self-centered. They were self-indulgent. Their lives revolved around themselves. They were blessed materially, and so they lived by the humanistic creed. God helps those who help themselves, and they helped themselves to whatever they wanted. Clearly, this, this is not a generous church. Blessed, but they are not a blessing. They received a lot, but they gave little. Like the Dead Sea, where all the water flows into it, but none flows out of it. And it creates a stagnant body of water, the deepest on the planet as a lake, with a saline level that is ten times that of the ocean, and where no life is visibly present. I've been there. There are no trees around the banks of the Dead Sea. It's just brown clay. Everything around it is dead and nothing lives in it. And Jesus confronts such a self-absorbed, self-serving life as is represented by the geography of the Dead Sea. Revelation 3.18, Jesus said, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You say you're rich, you've acquired wealth, you don't need a thing. I'm saying you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see these are the things they really needed. They needed to stop trusting in themselves and their money. Now, these weren't bad people. They weren't out partying at pagan festivals and worshiping false gods. They weren't drunks and gluttons and sexual libertines. These are nice, well-mannered folks with Midwestern values. They're respectable people that didn't hurt a soul. They're a lot like some American Christians today who've embraced a very comfortable brand of Christianity. Maybe they believe the church in Laodicea was actually lucky to have them as members. You see, Satan, he doesn't always try to convince us to go into the world and party like there's no tomorrow. Sometimes he'll settle for us being smug, self Congratulatory, self-satisfied, to never feel desperate for the grace of the Savior. Friends, we've got to get in touch with the forgiven sinner inside 
the best of us. And we've got to live every day with grateful hearts. Grateful not for what we have provided for ourselves materially, but grateful for what he has provided for us that we are incapable of providing for ourselves. And so what is his word to the church in Laodicea? He says, well, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And then he says, so be earnest and repent. So here are the takeaways for us as Christ followers this morning. Three phrases. Wake up. Hold on. Be earnest and repent. And I do love it. I do love it. That at the end of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have this invitation from Jesus. It's very tender. Revelation 3.20. Look at his grace. Here I am. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And at this time of commitment, what we need to do is hear his voice and open the door. And if you've looked at these pictures that they have, these images of of, uh, Jesus standing and knocking at the heart's door, you always notice that there's no latch on the outside that is you cannot he cannot get in unless the door is open from within but if we hear his voice we open the door he will come in and he will reside (laughs) and he will abide and his abiding presence will change your life it'll change your marriage it'll change your family it'll change your future if you're ready to take that step just a few moments we will invite you as we dismiss to just remain where you are just be seated where you are and our section hosts or a pastor will come to you and sit with you and counsel with you about your decision let's stand together for prayer and for worship and then if you have a decision you remain seated in the worship center please father we thank you we thank you today for The fact that the church is dear to the heart of the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that he's spoken to us. Just as surely as he has spoken to the seven churches long ago, he's speaking to us here this morning. Help us to take seriously those lessons that we've learned, those things that we hear and can apply. And Lord, we do pray for the person, for that one, for those ones who are here in the assembly this morning who need to act, who need to take a step. We pray that today would be the day. We thank you that Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't break down the door. He doesn't come in and take over. We open the door when we hear his voice and he comes in and abides. And our lives are never the same. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.